Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, Centered from Reality Podcast. It is Friday. In the words of Rebecca Black, it's Friday, it's Friday. Something, something, something on Friday. Anyways, I hope your week is going well. Lots of stuff happening this week. I mean, I can't even keep up. I mean, there's a few topics I, I've wanted to talk about, which I'm going to have to talk about next week. You know, lots of just lots of stuff going on. Um, today, I want to talk about how uh, China has reacted to Nancy Pelosi's little tour to Taiwan. Then I want to talk about some troubling information coming out of Kosovo and Serbia. And it seems like their old uh, tensions are heating up again, which could be problematic based on Serbia's president's ties to Putin and some of the grievance politics he spreads. And then I also want to just talk about our old friend Alex Jones. And he's back in the news. It looks like he's finally being held accountable. So lots to talk about. But first, on a light note, the preseason is back. So that's kind of nice. You know, it's... I was talking to my, I think I was talking to my dad about how this time of year sports are kind of rough. You know, I'm not a big baseball guy. Uh, I'm not a big Tour de France guy. Tennis is good, but we don't have a lot of tennis happening right now either. And so, soccer's my Real Madrid is currently, you know, on their kind of um, exhibition games. So it's it's kind of rough right now. So it's nice to have preseason back. Uh, the Jaguars played the Raiders last night. Uh, Raiders kicked the Jaguars' ass. So that's always good to see. And on a related football note. Apparently, Aaron Rodgers is really into psychedelics. Uh, He's my quarterback with the Packers. Uh, Apparently, he won't take the vaccine, but maybe he's winning so much because he's been on a spiritual journey because apparently he's said psychedelics have really helped him out. So whatever you're doing, Aaron, I guess keep doing it. Uh, But anyways, let's get into it. So first, in some uh, fun news, (laughs) if you want to call it that, our friend Nancy Pelosi, you know, just left Taiwan. And it's been reported yesterday, I think it was yesterday, that the Chinese launched several live fire drills around the island. For some reason, you never want live fire drills when you're a sovereign country and another country's doing it near you. Just just my opinion, but it, it usually doesn't feel good when that's happening. And these drills have caused major delays for ships and air traffic, obviously, if you're firing uh, missiles near an island, uh, yeah, people are probably not going to want to go by those, but... Taiwan's uh, defense ministry said uh, the Chinese People's Liberation Army, which is the PLA, had launched 11, and I believe it's now 16, Dongfeng series ballistic missiles into the waters to the northeast and southwest of mainland Taiwan. So that's troubling, but really not that surprising in my opinion. And according to The Guardian, Taiwan is uh, taking this quite seriously because its defense minister said that the nation's defense systems have been activated. And I've been skimming over statements from different world leaders or nations, and it looks like a lot of people are kind of worried about this escalatory measure because it is a pretty significant one, even though, as we know, China's been kind of escalating in other ways recently. And so, for example, Japan's foreign minister, Hayishi, has also called for an immediate stop to these exercises. Australia's foreign minister, Penny Wong, has called for de-escalation in the Taiwan Strait. The European Union has followed suit. Anthony Blinken has said some kind of milk toast, but also also condemning things, to say the least. And China, of course, has says these were, in quotes, exercises. But, you know, I mean, it's a little, little close, <laughs> a little close to the region, you know. Uh, I think you're just showing off your strength a little bit there. And there are fears expressed around the Internet this morning and by experts that maybe these test drills are some sort of trial run for how they would seal off the island of Taiwan. I mean... Obviously, there's a lot of trade that goes through that, through that area, 
And if you're firing missiles, you're going to be able to close it off, especially if you tried to do an invasion as well, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it, it definitely could get complicated fast. Now, I'm not as quick to jump to that conclusion. I think The Economist brings up a good point. It discusses how these fear-mongering tactics, in quotes, signal China's strength as much as its anger, but they also are not a prelude to war. And they may not reveal something, or, or sorry, they may yet reveal something of China's weaknesses. Because apparently something similar happened in 1995. China fired eerily close to the island after Taiwan's president visited America, obviously pissed them off. And one missile did fly over Taipei, which was certainly unprecedented and worrying. And however, though, in 95, most of, the, most of the missiles either malfunctioned and few of them were even fired. And obviously this shows that China is more prepared now. They shot over a dozen. And looking at the bigger picture, though, it does seem like China's prepared for something. But at the same time, I don't know if it's enough to really worry about. I'll, I'll get into that in a minute, but just adding some more context. Um, the Economist notes that in the 90s, China's defense budget was only twice the size of Taiwan, even though China, I believe, has like 60 times as many people, according to The Economist. So they were actually relatively close at the time, which I guess would maybe make sense if China was starting to industrialize during that period. I, it, it makes sense because China's obviously really taken off since then. And also, according to the Pentagon, the PLA, again, the People's Liberation Army, has achieved parity or surpassed America in the number of ships, submarines, surface-to-air missiles, and cruise and ballistic missiles it can deploy. So, I mean, China's obviously taken off, right? 20 times as much as Taiwan on defense, and they're pretty much equal or surpassing us at the same time. So, that's always good to hear. <laughs> Again, I'm not worried about some sort of war between the United States and China right now. I'm, I, it's, China's obviously an issue, but I just don't think they're that stupid. I could be wrong. Let me know if I'm wrong, but I, I just right now don't see that. But I guess on a more positive note, and this is kind of where I'm saying I don't know if this is actually a test drill for an invasion or sealing off Taiwan. It is still unclear if China could actually take the island. I'm sure they want to. They've expressed they want to, but I don't actually know if they could. And maybe I'm being optimistic, but there was a war game conducted by the Center for New American Security. It's a think tank. And it basically found that in a week of fighting, what China could do is land troops on the island, but they'd have trouble actually traversing the mountainous terrain and reach the most important city, capital, Taipei. And, you know, I mean, if, if you've seen pictures of Taiwan, I don't know, I'll, I'll admittedly, I don't know too much about Taiwan's um, geography, but all the pictures I've ever seen of Taiwan looks quite mountainous. And, you know, throughout history, usually mountainous places with a large uh, guerrilla opposition don't always go great for the invader. <laughs> so I think it would be interesting. And so this, this Center for New American Security, this, this war game they played, it also found that it was not certain uh, Ch Chinese forces could actually achieve a quick victory. And the think tank found that it would lead to a protracted conflict, meaning some sort of longer than expected conflict. They didn't say war of attrition like we're seeing in Ukraine, but that does kind of sound like what we're seeing in Ukraine is they expect a quick invasion, take Kiev, leave, and it takes longer than expected and it does become a war of attrition. And I guess that's not really surprising to me just because it does seem like it would be difficult to actually take an island without destroying all of it. And from what I've read, though, I think the focus, at least from a lot of foreign policy experts and Chinese experts and Taiwanese experts, is that 
Taiwan has a lot of outlying islands that would probably be in more jeopardy because um, The Economist goes on to talk about how on the days leading up to and on Pelosi's visit, Taiwanese troops on Kinmen, which is also known as Kimoi, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, are a group of islands just 10 kilometers from China's coast. And they fired flares at Chinese drones overhead. The next day, Chinese missiles were fired near Taiwan's Matsu Archipelago. And then there's the Pengju Islands, which are also pretty near and could be a concern. So I would imagine that if China wanted to do something, they would try to take some of these or siphon off some of these first. Also, this is maybe where you could see something happen where, like we saw, the, China, or the Taiwanese troops on Kinmen did fire on Chinese drones. I think that's where you could see escalation. I mean, it seems like China would want to try to take those first, at least trying to squeeze off the island before they actually just sent troops to the island. Because that's a, it's a big sea between China and Taiwan. I mean, it's not something they, they could just quickly fly over there and take it. Also, I think there'd be some time to be prepared, right? So, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not particularly worried as of now. Also, going back to Pelosi's trip to Taiwan and how Taiwan or how China is reacting, I think China is threatened when America entertains the idea of talking to Taiwan because it legitimizes Taiwan as a country and China doesn't want that. And either way, this next decade is going to be interesting because Xi, in a weird way, I'm not trying to draw too many parallels here, but like Putin, you know, Xi's getting older and probably wants to consolidate and solidify his 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 uh, legacy and one way to do that would be known as the guy who finally unifies taiwan and china officially so it, it will be interesting to see and on a side note um i went to a barbecue with some of my chinese friends oh earlier last month before i was attacked by the bats so yeah about a month ago and great time i'll, I'll always have fun with them and we always, you know, have a few drinks and then have some interesting conversations about Taiwan. They are all from, from mainland China, I believe. And so they are mainly, I, like, they're all pretty pretty liberal. Like, they love it here and stuff. And they're all mainly on the side of, of, of you know, cheese too authoritarian. The COVID lockdowns are problematic. But a lot of them do believe that Taiwan is part of China. It's not legitimately independent and that it's a lot of propaganda propped up by the West and, Taiwan, and the Taiwanese government. And... It's a perspective I find fairly common, even with even with more democratically leaning um, people from China. And I always just, you know, respectfully push back. And a lot of them kind of agree with me is that I, I say that I think Taiwan has or sorry, Taiwan was connected culture, culturally to China almost 80 years ago. Right before the before the Civil War and the eventual rise of Mao. But it's hard for me to imagine that they really are the same culture and people anymore because of how. Their political systems have been now divided for generations and how differently they've grown up. I mean, China is definitely a more authoritarian country and Taiwan is an open democracy. And so they've they've kind of almost gone on separate roads for almost almost a century at this point. And so it's really hard to believe that they actually have a lot in common anymore. So I don't know if they really share this common goal anymore. So, you know, when people say Taiwan is part of China, I just don't buy it just based on these different Tra trajectories they've had basically and anyways i hope pelosi enjoyed her trip it caused some nice heated tensions again i sorry we got a loud vehicle um but anyways like i don't i don't think she should be told she can't go but it was an interesting time to go and i wonder what she really accomplished now staying in the international space we're going to move over from asia to europe and 
There's some troubling news coming out of the Balkans. Apparently tensions are heating up again between Serbia and Kosovo, which is never good. And I can't help but wonder if Serbia has been learning from Russia and Mr. Putin, and also if they've been kind of enjoying some of that similar propaganda. I'll explain that in a moment, but first we should just kind of get into the background as kind of a little palate cleanser and refresher here. So basically earlier this week, I remember reading a report that NATO-led peacekeepers were trying to pull out of the area and they released a, a statement about affairs not going too well in, um, in Kosovo between Serbia. And it's kind of rare for peacekeepers to do this. So I decided it was worth taking a look. And it's kind of interesting because things have been kind of escalating for a few months now in the area. And it really doesn't get covered in Western press very much. Like, you would think it would be, at least in my opinion, because of our involvement in actually the creation of Kosovo as a semi-recognized country, and also our, you know, help in the bombings in that region, you know, along with the UN and NATO. So it was interesting to me. But anyways, I will try to do my best to explain this. It's a complicated issue, so don't kill me if I miss something here. But a brief background. So Kosovo is a fairly new country in Europe. It's only partially recognized. Interestingly, Ukraine actually doesn't recognize it as a country, which I find kind of ironic, but that's a whole other issue. So <laughs> we're going to stay off that. But anyways, Kosovo unilaterally declared its independence from Serbia in 2008. And from what I've read, it's recognized by most of the, at least European and 97 member states of the United Nations. And, you know, we have to remember that Kosovo's Albanian and Serb communities have had tensions that have kind of simmered throughout the 20th century. I think I've talked about this before, but during Yugoslavia's days, people like Tito kind of held those ethnic groups together with his kind of authoritarian control. But obviously, when Yugoslavia breaks up, all these ethnic tensions get exploited again, and you have leaders like Milosevic, for example. And, you know, they throughout the 20th century, the Albanians and the Serb communities throughout the Balkans had tensions that erupted into major violence. And one of those examples was the Kosovo War, which happened in 98 and 99. And this is when eventually NATO and its countries were involved in bombings and trying to end the conflict. The United States really led that. I think I was during the Clinton era, era. Sorry, And Serbia is mainly Orthodox Christian. Kosovo mainly consists of Muslims. So this is definitely a huge root of the tensions. And we have to remember Kosovars were some of the groups um, impacted by the atrocities committed during the kind of Serbian gen or Bosnian genocide era, you know, in, in Milosevic's era of terror, the demagoguery. So there's a lot of troubled history there. And so moving on, though, that's my real brief recap. Um, moving on, these countries obviously still have tensions. They don't go away overnight, and they're mainly on religious and ethnic grounds. It should also be noted, which you're probably not going to be surprised about, that Serbia still considers Kosovo part of Serbia. They don't recognize its independence. I'll get into later why that's a problem, because both of them want to be in the EU, and that's not possible with if there's border skirmishes. But anyways, basically over the last months, tensions are rising again over something that maybe to us or an American or a Spanish person or whatever would seem mundane, but it really is something bigger. So basically this time the tensions are over moves by the, the Kosovar government to enforce ethnic Serbs living in northern regions of Kosovo to obtain license plates issued by Kosovar forces and or authorities which is probably the better way to put it. And the Washington Post has a good passage that describes why this is an issue. 
And I'll go ahead and read this part um, from the Washington Post because I think it sums it up better than I could. Um, it says in quotes, the latest flare-up intentions is tied to new rules over license plates and cross-border travel documents. Under regulations that were meant to take effect on August 1st, ethnic Serbs living in villages in northern Kosovo would have to apply for license plates issued by Kosovar authorities for their vehicles. Since the late 1990s war, some in that population have, have used um, Serbian license plates with a different status. Authorities in Kosovo tolerated the dual track system to preserve the peace, but said last year they would no longer do so. So, I mean, first off, I would probably just want to keep the peace and let them use these. I don't know if it's worth going down this road, but apparently it is. And I also read that Kosovo would start forcing Serbians visiting Kosovo to have additional entry-exit papers, which is something that Serbia already does to Kosovo. So, you know, it's tough. And especially when you have a history where you probably have people with familiar ties living on each side of the border, if, if now you're enforcing exit entry papers and more strict, strict policies, it's going to get difficult. And, and you can understand why people probably on both sides would start getting angry here. And to me, it seems like it's an escalating game of chicken going on between the countries. Obviously, there's animosity there which is probably going to disqualify them from EU status for a while. But Pristina, which is the capital of Kosovo, has been trying to find ways to assert full control over the Serbs living within Kosovo. You can understand why that would piss them off. Like, I definitely personally think Kosovo should be its own country. I don't know enough about the Serbian side of maybe why they'd oppose that. But I'm for both of them trying to treat each other with respect, and it seems like neither one is. And I'm not both sizing it, it's just the truth. And now tensions that were simmering for years basically have popped off in the last week. Now getting to why it's relevant now. So last Sunday, which I guess was August 1st, let me, let me check that real quick. I think last, last Sunday was August 1st. Okay, no, it was Monday was August 1st, but but Sunday was the 31st. And so, okay, that makes sense. So, because re remember that new law of license plates was going to pass on the 1st. So, Sunday, Serbs inside of Kosovo blocked roads in northern Kosovo and forced authorities to shut down two border crossings. And apparently shots were also fired at Kosovar authorities. But as of now, from what I've seen, at least no one was reported to have been injured. But tensions escalated. There was some violence and upheaval, protests... And it obviously shut down borders in that area, so that's not great for either one. After this, Kosovo agreed to delaying this new license plate law as long as the more strict border crossings with, with uh, entry and exit policies for up to 30 days. And basically, it was on the grounds that the roads were unblocked and cleared. However, the Kosovar government is now also accusing the Serbian government of orchestrating these protests from Belgrade to help basically destabilize the region and cause some sort of internal strife. Now, if we want to call it good news, I guess we can call it good news. I saw this morning that Reuters reported that, in quotes, leaders of Serbia and Kosovo will meet in Brussels on August 18th to discuss a flare-up of tensions between the neighboring Western Balkan nations. Talks are important. However, I have seen people from the EU Commission not express a lot of optimism, so we're going to have to see. Again, I don't probably have too much optimism here because they're both blaming each other, and there's just such historic tensions here. Now, I'd like to zoom out on this topic and discuss why it's maybe more troubling on an international scale and could have bigger implications, though I'm not going to jump ahead to that at this moment. But 
The second I think about an ethnic Serbian region inside of Kosovo, I can't help but think of the Russian regions in the Donbass, for example, in Ukraine, or Transnistria in Moldova. And I just can't help but thinking about the parallels. And apparently I'm not alone, because according to the Washington Post, Vladimir Putin actually cited Kosovo to justify his recognition of two separatist provinces in the Donbass region. He apparently told the UN chief Antonio Gutierrez that very many states of the West recognized Kosovo as an independent state. We did the same in the respect of the republics of Donbass. So that is interesting, right? He's saying, well, Kosovo becomes its own country. The West recognizes Kosovo as an independent state, even though it was part of Serbia. So I'm going to do the same with parts of Ukraine. It's an interesting rationale. Of course, it's a rationale that, it, that ignores the brutal ethnic genocide of the 90s and kind of a compromise and, and religion and everything. But Putin does a good job of rationalizing these things. Moving on, um, going, going a little bit of a deep dive into this. Serbia's president is a guy named Aleksandr Vucic. Vukic, and I've heard some people refer to him as Little Putin. And apparently he's quite close to Putin. I, I have seen that before, is that he's one of the last European leaders with really close ties to Putin, other than our buddy, of course, Viktor Orban. And something that is kind of disturbing about Vukic is that he used to be Milosevic's spokesman. Remember, Milosevic, not a good guy. Um, should be dead of war crimes, in my opinion. But um, so now Vucic uh, governs in the strongman populist style of Hungary's Viktor Orban. It does kind of surprise me that a guy who was actually like with Milosevic during the Bosnian genocide is, uh, you know, actually still in power. Um, he must, they must not have had enough to get him. I don't know, but that is somewhat surprising to me. He, you know, he's following this populist rhetoric, which if we see what that did with Milosevic, not good. He's also an Orthodox Christian who emerged like Putin from a communist country and has relied on kind of close ties to the Orthodox Church, much like Putin and on Christian fundamentalism. And Andreas Klut, a European politics reporter, also notes in quotes here, both nurture victimhood as well as superiority complexes and grievances against neighboring countries that want to be independent but are home to many ethnic Russians or Serbs. In the name of protecting kinfolk, Russia and Serbia have variously behaved as aggressive irredentists. And I remember I was listening to Ben Rhodes, a former national security advisor to Obama, and he also speculated earlier in the week that since Putin is quite close to Vucic, does he maybe want Serbia to stir the pot just to cause chaos in the region? Obviously, we know Putin likes to delegitimize democratic movements around the world. It wouldn't be that surprising. Obviously, if he could find a way to kind of divide Europe or cause chaos in Serbia or some sort of EU-NATO issue, he would probably want to do it. And going back to something I kind of alluded to earlier is one thing that I learned today is that no countries with territorial disputes are allowed to join the EU. And that's actually really relevant for both Serbia and Kosovo because both really want to be EU members. Even if Serbia is quite populist, they do like to join the EU for a lot of obviously sanctioned reasons, a lot of funding reasons. It would probably be great. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and all, a lot of former Yugoslavian countries want to join the bloc if they aren't already in there. But yeah, Serbia and Kosovo kind of need to behave themselves if they want to do that. And 
So I think that is actually some good news, is that probably they would try to not escalate this, even if the governments are problematic. But yeah, I, I think that actually could stop something worse from happening. And Bloomberg notes here, a renewed Kosovo conflict would be smaller in scale than the war in Ukraine and lack the specter of nuclear weapons. But it would take place closer to the geographic heart of the European Union, which is a point. Again, I don't think a conflict would happen, but it would be interesting to kind of the whole system. Also, Andreas Kluth, the guy I mentioned earlier, writes in quotes here, the geopolitical lineup would be much the same in both confrontations. He means Ukraine and uh, this one. He says the EU and NATO would presumably support one side, Kosovo, with Russia and China the other, Serbia. And so that, that is interesting because both of these conflicts kind of have, I guess, a similar dynamic. You have a populist, anti-democratic guy who is using grievance, and it would be the West kind of backing the other side. Again, I don't want to get ahead of that, but it would not be great. It would definitely not be great. And the propaganda game, of course, in Moscow and Belgrade has already begun. And it's really striking at the heart, the heart of sovereignty and what it means to be an independent state. And this is why, in my opinion, Putin and his other minions or types are so dangerous. You know, Vushitz wants uh, Kosovo back, Orban wants parts of Romania back, and Putin wants all of Ukraine at this point, and he's willing to level Ukraine to get, to get it back. So it's really, really problematic. And okay, lastly, before we go, um, I do want to move back to the United States for a minute. Well, actually, in reality, I'd rather move back to Europe, but for this for this segment, we're we're coming back to the U.S. to talk about some things. So let's start with a quick quick little good news here. I guess kind of good news. Um, CNN has reported that Senator Kirsten Cinema on Thursday night offered critical support for President Joe Biden's agenda, and agreed to uh, move forward after her and party leaders agreed to make some some changes at the tax proposals. And she said she will move forward on the Democrats' sweeping economic package. So I'm not surprised that she wanted some changes on the taxes. We know she's not a fan of raising taxes. But I hope they're not too much because everything I've read about this Inflation Act show that the tax proposals would not hurt anyone except the uber-rich and corporations. It would just get corporations to pay a fair share. Again, Kirsten Cinema, I'm not a fan of. She seems to be owned by corporations. She's really transformed from kind of a progressive to this. At least Manchin's direct, and we kind of know that where he stands. Cinema, I don't know, not a fan, but I'll digress for now. CNN also says now there is one remaining hurdle, and it says in quotes, a review by the Senate parliamentarian, Elizabeth McDonough, who must decide whether the provisions in the bill meet strict rules to allow Democrats to use the filibuster-proof budget process to pass the legislation along party lines. So again, now we have to see if they could actually do this. So, reconciliation is the next step. Again, there's a lot in here. Republicans are going to fight it. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. Finally, <laughs> finally, I, I wanted to save this the best for last or worst for last. We'll see what you guys think. But our buddy Alex Jones has really been shot down. And I guess finally he's learning that you can't just say dangerous and depressing and problematic conspiracies and never have any consequences because finally he is facing some consequences. Before I get into the facts of this lawsuit that he's been going through, which was, I guess, decided on Thursday night, so yesterday, I've been watching this trial and it really is a shit show. Uh, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so if I mess up terms, don't kill me. But basically, his defense attorney... <laughs> This is great. Apparently, he accidentally sent the prosecution 
all of um, Alex Jones's phone records. And so now it looks like Alex Jones has pretty much lied under oath and has, has committed perjury because now the prosecution actually has all these phone records. So when they've been asking Alex Jones something and he's like said, no, no, sir, or, you know, whatever. Apparently he's uh, the prosecution the whole time's actually known that's not true. And there's a clip of the prosecutor. Basically, he looks like he's just licking his chops as he finally mentions that they've had all of Jones' phone records. And it's just a nightmare. Um, basically, the judge has to pretty much treat him like a small child. She's like, okay, Alex, so I just need you to answer yes or no. I just need no no diatribes, no rants. He, he agrees. He's like, all right, yes, sir, yes, sir. And then, you know, a few minutes later, he goes into a rant about the deep state and the media and it's it's a nightmare. Um, he, there was one point where he, like, I'm sure you guys are aware, you're not allowed to eat or drink inside of uh, inside of the courtroom. And there's one point where apparently he's, like, chewing on something, and the judge is like, you know you can't eat or drink in here. And he's like, oh, I'm just chewing on gauze. And she's like, gauze? Can we see it? He's like, all right, let me show you. And she's like, no, I don't need to see it. Like, He's like, no, I, I had something done. I, I'm chewing on gauze. And uh, I don't know. It's just, it's so entertaining. It's like, it's like a car wreck that I just can't look away from like you know he's he's just become a complete joke of himself if that's even possible and it's just it's just a lot and he also apparently he he apparently keeps saying that he's bankrupt and the judge has to remind him that just because you declare bankruptcy doesn't mean you can just tell everyone you are bankrupt I like, like, I've heard people like David Pakman speculate that maybe he's trying to get a mistrial because it would be good for him. I, I just don't know. It's, it's really entertaining. I, I recommend people check out some of the clips because this guy is just, I mean, th I guess this is why he's always been pretty popular is because of just how, how much of a spectacle he is. So I will just go on to some of the facts, and I'll, I'll just start by saying I find him somewhat entertaining when he's on different podcasts. He was on Flagrant too, and it was funny. I will give it that. He's been entertaining on Joe Rogan. But I, I've kind of done some speculation about it. Not speculation, some, some deep reflection about it, excuse me. And I've realized that he's not worth enjoying because, you know, the things that he said about Sandy Hook, denying that these parents' kids were killed and it led to death threats and some having to go into hiding and protection programs, it's just awful. He ruined these people's lives be, because he apparently knew some secrets. What about Pizzagate? People end up dead there. He's part of the QAnon stuff. Also, now he's being apparently investigated for the January 6th chaos. You know, it's he's entertaining, but the things he says are just pretty dangerous, in my opinion. And anyways, the trial that is wrapping up is about Sandy Hook, not the other stuff. The Guardian reports here, in quotes, a 12-person jury on Thursday said Jones must pay the parents $4.1 million in compensation damages for spreading conspiracy theories about the murder of 20 children and six staff at Sandy Hook Elementary School in, excuse me, Newtown, Connecticut on the 14th of December, 2012, which the right-wing broadcaster claimed was a hoax. And of course, you know, it's, it's come up in the trial a few times. Alex Jones has distanced himself from it. I've heard him in other interviews say he's distanced himself from the conspiracy and that he's learned it was not real. He's acknowledged in quotes, it was 100% not real. But to be honest, it's a little late. And he even tries to defend why he defended it, saying, well, my sources all told me it was true. And, you know, actions have consequences. I'm sorry. He, he was directly involved in ruining some of these people's lives. And there has to be consequences for that. Um, a lot of questions are now about what happens to InfoWars. Because 
$4.1 million is quite a lot. Um, he's, you know, obviously, I think it was InfoWars, actually. Or, or no, it, it was the group he's involved with that owns InfoWars and stuff that filed for bankruptcy. And so you have to wonder, what's next for InfoWars? Does it go under? Now, I, I can't imagine Alex Jones is broke. But $4.1 million, if, if InfoWars is struggling, that's going to be a lot. So is this the end of InfoWars? I don't know. Um, sometimes if I really hate myself, I'll listen to some of Steve Bannon's chaotic podcast. And Alex Jones is on there. He still has a huge following. Steve Bannon acts like Alex Jones is, you know, the, the OG guy. Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't really know. It's, it's, it's pretty chaotic. Um, but he also... <laughs> He also is likely to be at least subpoenaed, I believe, by the January 6th committee. And yeah, I don't think things are looking good for Alex Jones. So um, as his voice gets hoarser and he looks crazier, I think things are going down for him. His dreams have kind of been shot down. So anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Podbean, all that jazz. Thanks for listening. We'll be back Monday and have a great weekend. And um, Try to stay positive, enjoy the heat, enjoy the end of summer here, and uh, we'll be back next week. Gracias.